Well, we are thankful that you are here with us this morning. It is, again, just a joy to be with you. Uh, we, I, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Thank you all from last week. I know it feels like it was months and maybe years ago, but last week we just had the opportunity to raise over uh, $11,033.65. So we are very excited about that. Thank you so much for your generosity. So that allows us to be able to build our adoption fund. Again, if you're interested in adoption foster care, want to be able to apply for that grant, the grant kind of information is through Michelle. So I'd love for you to contact her or you can find it at the uh, under the tent. So again, thank you again for last week. Thank you for your generosity. We are so thankful to be able to make an impact on that. Get your Bibles again, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Hear God's word with me, verse 25. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have, have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, but rather be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave and one of the most remarkable stories that I've ever heard, let me tell you, my, I told this story to my kids last night, they didn't think it was that remarkable, so if you don't think it's that remarkable, I'll give you grace in that. But one of the most remarkable stories that I've ever heard centered around two men, a man by the name of Jacob DeCheeser and a man by the name of Mitsu Fuchara. These two men lived on separate parts of the world, but yet by God's grace. God has connected their stories to form one of the greatest transformation stories ever told. Jacob DeCesar was, was one of the men who was, uh, was a bomber on the Doolittle Raid. And if you're familiar with the Doolittle Raid, you know it was during World War II and when the U.S. bombed Tokyo. And it was a momentum changer and really changed the course of World War II. As he bombed these things, there were six bombers, 15 of them as they bombed uh, over Japan at the time. Uh, 16, uh, 15 of the 16 bombers were not able to land. So therefore, their crew had to be released over a kind of enemy terry. A lot of them died. Some of them ended up escaping back into the U.S., but yet some were able to be, uh, some got captured by Japan, and, and Jacob was one of those men. Jacob, along with seven men, were put into a Japanese kind of a prison camp, and there he was tortured, he was beaten on a regular basis, he was given a starvation rations, which he wasn't able to eat that much, and on top of that, spent 34 weeks in solitary confinement. He was there for, for 40 months. And as you can imagine, experiencing this, the bitterness in his soul towards the, the captors that were beating him on a daily basis was beginning to rise. He was beginning to, to hate the Japanese people. But yet even in the midst of his hardship, you see God's grace. He was given a Bible, and that only for three weeks. He would open up and read it, and as he's opening up the scriptures, he was able to see the beauty of who Jesus was. 
And as he saw the beauty of who Jesus was, he, he gives his life to Christ in this moment. And as he gives his life to Christ, he realizes that his heart is beginning to transform. He's no longer bitter at those who are beating him. But he had empathy in his soul. Jacob writes this, he says, My enemy, officers and guards who had starved and beaten and, and my companions and even killed some of them with so much cruelty, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. Can you imagine being beaten on a daily basis, but yet not having anger in your soul towards these people, but having love? This is Jacob's story. Power of the gospel to transform his heart, but his story is not over. When he gets released from Japan, you would think that he would kind of leave and never go back to this place ever again because of the memories, but, but that's not what Jacob did. He gives his life to Christ, and now he feels called into ministry, being a missionary. And listen, he, he goes back to the very same city that he bombed, and he lives there for 33 years ministering to these people. Plants over 23 churches. Redemption story, a transformation story. Him, this, this previous enemy of these people, now becomes to live with them and love them and plant churches there and becomes their family. It's an amazing story, but his story is not over. Jacob, while in Japan ministering to these people, he, he writes this kind of pamphlet that they hand out to other people, like this gospel tract, and, and it's in his story. Uh, he writes his story about how he's able to forgive these Japanese guards. And that was only through Christ, and Christ transforming his heart. Well, that's important because this tract gets in the hands of a man by the name of Mitsu Fuchida. Mitsu Fuchida was one of the lead bombers, hear this, one of the lead bombers that bombed Pearl Harbor from Japan. He gets this track, this lead bomber who bombed Pearl Harbor, and, and he's reading this track. He's hating the Americans at the time, but yet he's, he's caught up with how, how could anybody love their captors? How could anybody's heart be changed to, to love the enemy? And he's, and he's caught up with how is this taking place? So, so he grabs the Bible and he begins to read it. He's 47 years old at the time. He's, he's never picked up a Bible in his life. He's never even heard the name of Jesus. But he picks up this Bible. And he's beginning to read. And he reads into Luke chapter 23. And he sees this picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. When Jesus says, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He hears and reads these words. He, he begins to weep because he sees the gospel for the very first time. And he knows these words are for him. That Jesus was forgiving him. As he reads these words, he gives his life to Christ. And what's so amazing now is Jacob begins to disciple Mitsu. And he begins to baptize Mitsu. And you see previous enemies in war who bombed each other's countries now becoming brothers in Christ, family. It's amazing. But Mitsu's story goes on. He becomes a missionary. And where does he become a missionary? In the United States. The very country he tried to bomb. He becomes this great evangelist, leading thousands of people to Jesus Christ. 
You read these two stories and you're amazed that God can transform the hardest of hearts. Two individuals who hated each other's country, now doing life together, understanding that they're family now through the power of the gospel. And you hear these stories and you're amazed. But they shouldn't surprise us. It's what God has been doing from the very beginning. As Mitsu himself said, it's no secret what God can do. Because as you and I open up this book, what we see is we see God transform hearts. That's what's so interesting about the scriptures. So many prodigals actually play the hero in this book. And when the prodigal plays the hero, you know that God has transformed their hearts. Adulterous named David becomes a man after God's own heart and becomes the king of Israel. Jacob, a liar, is transformed to become the father of the nations. You look at Zacchaeus, a man who constantly was cheating everybody out of their own money so that he can have it for himself. But when God gets a hold of his heart, he becomes a generous man. And you hear these stories, and you're amazed. Paul himself understood this. Here's a man who stood watching St Stephen be stoned to death with a smile on his face. But God intersected his path and transformed his heart. See, God specializes in transforming people's hearts. And we see that so clearly in the book of Ephesians. Remember what Paul is doing in, in Ephesus at the time. He's bringing Gentile and he's bringing Jew. Two groups who hated each other. And he's bringing them together. And by the power of the gospel, he's allowing them to do life together because they understand they're now family. And now he turns to us. He says, I transformed your heart. Because you came to faith, your heart has been transformed. And now what he's calling us to do is go to live a new life with new behaviors. This is the way you do that is by putting off the old. Clothing yourself with this new behavior, Christ-like behavior. That, that's what we see in this passage. He's calling us to, to show off our transformed hearts. We see these stories, we're amazed. In fact, as we turn into to our, our, our passage this morning, one of the things we have to understand is really the theme of chapter 4 is the theme of transformation. I mean, you just read through chapter 4 and you see that God has transformed so many different things in our lives. But when we, we hear the word transformation in the Christian life, we have to think of it in kind of two different ways. There's this kind of instant transformation that takes place, and yet there's this also this kind of progressive, this, this sanctification transformation that takes place over the lifetime of our lives. In one sense, yes, we are new creations. In an instant, we're transformed. And we see that as we're moved from guilty party to now an innocent party. We see that as our hearts of stone have now been replaced with a heart of flesh. We, we see that, that we are apart from Christ and now in Christ, and the list goes on, and is this all instant transformation that takes place in our lives? But if you live this Christian life for any length of time, you understand there's also 
This aspect of us having to move now into this new transformation behavior. In other words, we have this new heart, but now I'm called to walk into this new behavior by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That we walk into this new behavior, and the way we do that, according to Paul, is by putting off our old behavior and now clothing ourselves with this new Christ-like behavior. And that's what we see in this passage. He's going to tell us four different ways that we kind of put on and put off. And as you're looking at this passage, I know it's been a long time, since a, a, a week or two since we've been back in Ephesians. But, but what you have to understand is all these words now in chapter 4 that we just read center around the beginning of Paul's call for unity. Again, he places two groups. Within the body, he says, get along. But also understand community is hard. Community takes hard work. It's not always easy. That's why he told us at the beginning, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, I need you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be proactive about it because it's not going to come easy. But how do we maintain this unity within the body? Well, it's by putting off the old, putting on the new. In fact, as we're reading about this behavior in this passage, we have to understand the communal aspect of it. It's all based off of community. It says this is the ingredients, this is the recipe of how you're able to maintain the unity within this family. It's by putting off this old behavior and now putting it on. And he begins to explain it by four different behaviors in this passage. In fact, I think what we're going to do is we're going to come back to this passage next year and go verse by verse through each one of these kind of behaviors because he's very quick. Talks about it in one verse and he moves on. And we can do numerous sermons just on one sentence within this passage. So forgive me if I'm just kind of brief as we're kind of just walking through so quickly this morning. But the first thing he says is he calls us to truth. Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, therefore, having put off falsehood, Putting off the great lie in the singular, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for catch it, what's his reasoning? For we're all members of one another. And hopefully we see the purpose of why we are called to truth. You see, Spurgeon said that a lie has the opportunity to, to make it around the world before truth is able to even put its shoes on. Very true statement. The gossip and lies amongst this place can spread so quickly, and before truth can have its word... The lies already spread. But there's another reason why we're called to be members of, of, of speaking truth. Because this is who our God is. God is truth. Titus would tell us that, that God can't even say a lie. This is who God is in His very nature. He is truth. Jesus. And the way, the, the truth and the life. So that when you and I are walking in truth, we're walking in the way of our Heavenly Father. But yet you also know that Satan is called the father of lies. So that when we're walking in truth, we're walking in the way of who our Father is. But yet when we're walking in lies, we're, we're walking in the way of the enemy. Paul says, you want to create unity? Be people who point each other to truth. Because yes, what we need to understand is that we're a community that's called a creedal community. That our unity is based off the creed, the scriptures, truth, the gospel. That the way that we are center ourselves is off of this book. So the way that we build into this unity is speaking this book into each other's lives. 
be one another, that be people who, who encourage each other with verses, to correct each other when we need correction in a humble manner. The point is back to the power and the might and the beauty of the gospel. Paul says, I need you to be people of truth. But then he quickly moves on in verse 26. He says, I need you to put off the lie, idolatry, and speak truth. And, and then he begins to say in this next passage, I need you to be people who are angry, but don't sin in that anger. Look at what he says in verse 26. 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And as you're reading verse 26, I bet you got a whole bunch of questions. And I got a hundred questions. What, what do you mean, Paul? Be angry? How, how, do we, how are we angry but yet not sinning? Well, what does this look like? When does our sin move from righteous anger to, to, to sinful anger? How do we tell the difference? But Paul, he just spins one tiny verse talking about what this looks like. And I have a lot of questions. And you would think with such a hard kind of topic that Paul would spend some time, but yet he doesn't. Like what's so interesting to me is Seneca, who just spent like just a decade earlier, what's so interesting about that is he, he wrote three entire books on this emotion of anger. Three entire books, and yet Paul spends one tiny little verse. I got questions. Paul, what does this look like? Because what we have to understand is what's so hard about this emotion might be the hardest emotion in Christian life because we can have a righteous and a right and biblical anger in one moment. Let the anger stew for ten minutes and it can move to a sinful and unrighteous anger. Which tells us that this line between a righteous and an unrighteous anger is so thin. You know, what does it look like for us to be people who model this verse? He says, be angry. And he has the question, man, we're already living in an angry culture. What does this look like for us? Why is he calling his people to be angry? We're always, we're always angry. But here's the thing. I think Paul understands that we often get angry at the wrong things. And the things that should anger us, we often are apathetic about. And yet he says, be angry. Be angry at the things that make God angry. What, is, what makes God angry? Sin. Injustice. When the vulnerable are taken advantage of. That these things should, should, should cause anger within our souls because it causes God to get angry. What's so interesting about the scriptures is when you open up the scriptures, you do see this picture of God getting angry. And that shouldn't kind of catch us off guard. No, 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 this is a good thing. Because what we see is that the opposite of, of, of anger is not kindness, but the opposite of anger is apathy. And we don't want our God apathetic to sin in this world. We don't want our God to just throw up His hands when He sees sin in our own lives and shrug His shoulders and say, I don't know what to do about it. No, we want God to go to war against sin. We want God to put a full court press upon our own sin in our own lives and that's exactly what we see. Open up the book of, of Romans and you see the anger of God and its consequences 50 different times. 
And yet as you're looking at the, at the, the anger of God, what we see is it's in, in, intrinsically tied to His holiness. So allow Dia Carson to write this, that God's wrath is not impeccable. It's not blind rage. However emotional it may be, it is an, an entirely reasonable and willed response to catch it to offenses against His holiness. God gets angry at offenses against His holiness. He gets angry against sin. He gets angry at injustice. He gets angry that anything that sets itself up in its kingdom. So the question we ask ourselves, is this what makes us angry? See, it, we, we look even in the book of Romans, and what does it say? It says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Sin should make us angry. We, we, we should get, get angry at illness and sickness and death. It's contrary to God's kingdom. We should get angry at, at immorality and sin and abuse. These things should make us angry because they made Jesus angry. But here's the thing. In our anger, we just don't stew. No, anger is called to move us to action. Anger is called to, to move us to pr pursuing biblical restoration, peace, shalom, and redemption. So now what we see with Jesus' life, yes, he gets angry at, at what the temples are turned because they turned the church into this place of nationality, which was just the Jews. He said, no, this needs to be a, a, a place of prayer for the nations. And he cleanses the temple. And it moves him to restore the biblical shalom, and it's the same thing should, should be done in our lives. Paul calls us to remember to get angry, and then he calls us to make sure you don't sin. And the question we ask is, how do we tell the difference? Let me tell you, you're, you're, you're going to need a lot of work here. You're going to need to ask for wisdom by the Holy Spirit. You're going to need for, for community's input. Ask for them to help kind of to decipher What's going on in your own life, and your own anger in your life, is this a, a good thing? And help you process it. Because there's a tendency for all of us to look at our own anger and say, yes, it's always righteous. So we need other people, we need the scriptures, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us, to really determine, do we have a righteous anger or an unrighteous anger? But let me give you a couple questions to help, to kind of help us in this. First questions deal with the root of our anger. Is the root of our anger, is it a righteous root or is it an unrighteous root? So we ask ourselves, what incited the anger in the first place? What, what did we hope that, that the events would achieve, that if they did achieve those events, we wouldn't be angry? It's a good question. What, what, what were those things that you were after looking for, that you desired to happen, and if those desires took place, that it wouldn't make yourself get upset? Why is that question so telling? Because it shows us what kingdom is, is really at the priority of our lives. What incited the anger? Was it our own kingdom that kind of got jolted? Or was it an offense to God's kingdom? Because I think what's going to be able to see, what you're able to see is it really often is our own kingdom that got misplaced. Somebody made us late. Man, our, our desires and what we, we expected to take place, our expectations weren't met. Somebody cut us off. And when we, in, in these moments, that's what causes our anger. But what we'll notice, man, it's all about our own kingdom. Our, our, our egos were hurt, so we get angry. 
But the center of all those reasons is self. We, we, we rarely find ourselves getting angry at, at the robbing of God's glory in this world. But rather, it's usually when our glory is robbed, that's when we find ourselves getting angry the most. So that's the first set. What is the reason? Why, why are we getting angry? Maybe you say, yes, I have right reasons to be angry in this moment. So then the next question, are you handling that anger in appropriate biblical fashion? So the next question we ask is, is my anger proportionate to, to the offense? Am I, and even when I'm angry, am I able to handle myself in a tender-hearted, kind manner? Is my anger moving me to be proactive, or is it just letting me stew in which I spread gossip about my anger? Or is it leading me to, to long for restoration? See, again, these questions are helpful because they reveal what really is the priority of our own hearts. And maybe you're like me, and you've been struggling with this idea of anger in our culture and anger within our own lives, and, and you're saying, yes, often my anger is unrighteous. I find myself getting angry over the little things in life. What do we do when that happens? This is where I find David Paulson's, uh, just his, his, his writing so helpful. He's, he writes this, he says this. Questions we talked about, these questions dig deeply into the springs of anger. They reveal your heart. What you crave, what you trust, what you hate, and what you love. When anger goes astray, it says something about how we are going astray inside, about who is at the center of our universe. Then he writes, when anger runs amok into temper, bitterness, and grousing, you don't just need a technique to calm yourself down. You don't just need your circumstances to change. You, you don't just need other people to change. What you need is your core motives and values to change. You get what he's saying there? He's saying we don't need our circumstances to change. You've got an anger problem? It's not on the outside. It's your own heart. Change your core motives. And this question, what he's saying is so helpful because what it allows us to see is I need a change in my value system. I need to understand what kingdom really matters. That when the kingdom of God is placed back into its right place, it's no longer me saying, my will be done, my kingdom come. And because you hurt my kingdom, I'm hurt and I'm angry, but rather now it becomes your kingdom come, God. Your will be done. I am simply just a servant to your kingdom. And when I become a servant to your kingdom, servants don't complain. Servants don't get angry. Servants are after their king's ways and their king's ways alone. So you've got an anger problem and your anger problem is unrighteous. Don't just take 10 second breath. Yes, that's helpful. But at the end of the day, what you need is you need your core values to change. So that the center of your life and what you're looking at is not your own kingdom, but it's God's kingdom. And watch, that will do a drastic work in your life. So you, you need to flip it upside down. That's what he says in this last line. He, he says, yes, the, 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 yes, be right or be angry. But he says, don't sin in your anger. And he goes down to say, I need you to make sure that you don't go to sleep or let the sun go down on your anger and don't give opportunity for the devil. In other words, he says, don't let that anger stew into bitterness. Process it. Deal with it. Do like the Psalms. Write it out. Cry it out to God. Lament. 
Deal with your anger in a healthy way so that it is righteous and it moves you to action. We can say a whole lot more about that, but because Paul moves on, we'll move on as well. Paul moves on to this third mark. Now he moves to this idea of, 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 of work. He says we need to put off laziness, put on hard work. Catch what he says in verse 28. Put off laziness, put on hard work. He says let no thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right then in the that verse brings conviction to our heart. Not because all of us are thieves, but because of the motive that Paul tells us what our work is all about. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, go to work, be hard workers so you can build your own kingdom. He doesn't say, go to work, be hard workers so you can have this, this nice, luxurious life that you can be comfortable in life. He doesn't even say, go to work, be hard workers so you can build a big savings account for yourself. Understand the book of Proverbs? Savings is good. But notice his singular function and why we go to work so that we could be generous with what we make. Be hard workers so that you can share it with people in need. Is that not convicting? Is that how we think in life? Let's go make more so we can share it? That's not the American way, but that is the biblical way. John Wesley said, said it right when he said, I need Christians to work as hard as they can, to make as much money as they can, so they can be, give it as much away as they can. Work hard. Go to work so that you could have funds to be able to spread to those in need within the community. Next, what he says, he moves on very quickly again. Moves on in verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. He moves to the mouth now, but only what is such is good for building each other up. As fits the occasion, that it, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul says, let nothing bad, immoral, evil come out of your mouths. In essence, what he's saying is words, they matter in community. They matter. They have the ability to create a great community and they have the ability to create an awful community. They have the ability to, to heal the community and yet they have the ability to bring sickness to community. So he said, I need you to, to get rid of, 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 of just the, 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 the bad kind of you know, awful talk that comes out of your mouth. Make sure that it is built for the building up of community. It was Augustine who had this sign in his house. Imagine going to Augustine, St. Augustine's house, and you're having dinner, and you, and you look upon the wall, and it said this. Whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. It's his way of reminding folk that gossip wasn't going to take place in his house. Don't speak evil. Just build each other up. It's what Paul is getting at. We as believers, we have a transformed heart. If we look at what the Scriptures said, that if our words really reflect our heart, and we have a transformed heart, our words should be transformed as well. So we come into this place and we use our words to encourage each other, to inspire each other, to, to point each other to the beauty of the Scriptures. 
So we see what he's trying to tell us is, is what Paul would say in Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right and pure, whatever is lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. I would say it this way, speak those things. Let those things flow from your mouth. That you are a blessing to people, an inspiration to people, an encourager to people. I remember what it said of Tom Carson, this pastor in Canada, D.A. Carson's father, it's, was said of this, that he was never good at putting anybody down, only to put them down in his prayer list. Never good at putting people down, only to put them down in his prayer list. Would that be us? That we would be people that you use our words in a biblical fashion to build people up rather than tear them down. He moves on again, says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Cannot help but look at that verse and really see what he's pointing to. He's pointing us to heaven. You're sealed for redemption. All of us in this room are sealed for the same place. Which means that this is a foretaste of heaven. As we join together, this is the family we're going to be in. What Paul was saying, hey, if you're going to be family for all of eternity, should not you practice it in this place before we get there? He moves and he moves on to, to verse uh, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, but he catch it, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God, Christ, forgave you. Now we can spend so much time just right there, but notice what he's saying. He really, verse 31, it summarizes all he said. He says, this is what unrighteous anger looks like. Bitterness and wrath and anger. You let anger stew for any length of time? And it creates division, not unity within the body of Christ. So therefore, he says, be quick to forgive. Why? Because Christ Jesus forgave you. He says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Is that not the picture of Jesus? In essence, what he's saying, you want the recipe for how we create unity within the body of Christ? Imitate Jesus. That's why it says in chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as his children. We're called to imitate our Heavenly Father. Then how do we imitate Him? Kind to one another, tender-hearted. This is the recipe for Christian unity. Reflect Christ's kindness. Reflect Christ's tender heart. And show Christ's grace off to other people. There's so much more that we could say. But is this not what we want to, to be known for? Be known for the church that reflects Christ. Be known for the place that steps out of our comfort zone to show tender hearts to those around us. To be kind and generous. Your words have an impact. Just the ability to come up and say hello to somebody before service has an impact. So often we get caught up with this idea that yes, we come to church, but... We, we go and sit in our place and we kind of just sit there and we, we're never able to, to really communicate with the family of God. 
Paul says, this, this is the recipe. Transform that into now being kind, tenderhearted. And that last part, he understands people sin. So therefore, we're going to need to forgive. Just as Christ has forgiven us. Be gracious, folk. Go around showing off Jesus. That we would be able to be a light to the outside world. In fact, what's so interesting about this passage is it literally mocks what, what, what or it, it mimics what Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5. I think we often forget the fruit of the Spirit really was Paul's proof to his people. How do you know the gospel is true in a community? How do you know? It's shown by their, their actions, by the fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit in you, it should reflect itself. So Paul says in the book of Galatians, hey, how do you tell that if this is a community that has the true gospel? It's in their actions. And yet, what is he saying in this passage? He's saying the same thing. You're transformed. Don't be like the Gentiles. Be different. So that the world can look in and see, yes, this gospel is powerful. And when you look at Jacob's life, when you look at, 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 at Mitsu's life, how can you not look at their life and say, yes, the gospel is real? They looked at their abuser in their face and said, yes, he's now somebody I can love. I can't do that on my own. That's the power of the Spirit. God, I'm thankful. God, I'm thankful that you call us to be different. God, I'm thankful that you empower us by your Spirit to live this out. Oh God, let us be people who who at the end of the night, we get on our, our hands and knees and beg you to transform our hearts. God, forgive us for how many times we've, we've not used our words to build people up, but we've used to tear them down. Can I remind you, they're made in your image. So God, let us reflect that and how we treat people. God, move in our hearts to create a place that is a loving, family-like atmosphere where your spirit overwhelms us. God, I pray that people in this room feel deeply, deeply loved by you. You are our Father. We are family. So we thank you for that promise. Be with your church. We pray these things in your son's name.